we have seen the companies that are bringing people back in the office have not been seeing any in-office transmission in environments where they have a very high degree of vaccination. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Fred, Bill, I know you've been looking at uh, the data for the week. What is it telling us? See, people don't talk about daily death rate. They're talking about cumulative deaths, and it covers up the woeful deficiencies of policies in the uh, freedom states. Uh, For instance, West Virginia has 145 per million. Uh, Alabama has 124 per million. Idaho has 120 per million. Wyoming, uh, 96 per million. And Florida, 87 per million deaths per day. So Florida, I have as of today, is per 100,000 is 0.6. Yeah, it's gone down a little bit. This is from 1014. So, so as of today, average daily new deaths per 100,000, I'm going to look at the whole country, and I'm going to put it in order by that. And the highest are Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, Idaho, West Virginia. Right. Um, those are the only ones that are over one per 100,000 per day. Right. And then when you get down, Florida is right, is right smack in the middle of the pack. Um, and New York is, where's New York? New York is, is, New York is the, the lowest state um, at 0.1. I, I wow. don't, it doesn't go into the a little more, doesn't go more. So, yeah. so it's six, at least six times what it is. But you know, the lowest, the lowest currently are New York, Connecticut, Wisconsin, Vermont, Rhode Island, New Jersey, New Hampshire. And what's California? California is relatively, it's like maybe 15 up from the bottom at 0.3. So about half that of the rate in in Florida. But I wonder what happens when you age adjust those rates too. That would be a a big question because the the Florida age is, I mean, it's it's not double (laughs) that of California, but it it is significantly higher. In the especially in the the, the at risk the most at risk population, Texas and Florida versus California and New York, they have very glaringly different policies. Yeah, and, and, and again, so when you look at overall rates, I don't think you can draw a draw a, con, a good conclusion. If you look at current rates, there's it, yeah, it that's is, what you look more, at current rates. You got to look at current well, but, rates. except you got to be careful about that because you can. You know, how many of the at-risk population, and there was a significant amount of at-risk population that was hit early on in some of the, in some states. And again, there's not a really a red-blue on that. It's just a, yeah. as things stand now, Florida is, its case rate is. Yeah, it's low. Yeah, it's come, it's come way down. Yeah, it's 16 per, I think it's like 12 or 12 or 14 per 100,000. Let me kick off because um, there's been, greater transparency in terms of the number of agencies and groups that have to sign off on things. But it seems that there's um, some news and maybe some clarity in terms of the guidance for people about a third vaccine. And maybe you can help us sort it out, including the mixing and matching uh, protocol that some people are talking about. Well, let me hit that very last part first. Um, I think that we had said in previous weeks, the data was looking very good for some degree of mixing and matching. Most specifically, if you had a 
uh, a uh, adenovirus-based vaccine, which in the United States is J&J, um, internationally is J&J, or more commonly AstraZeneca, followed by an mRNA vaccine, there were significantly higher levels of antibodies. And the data that the uh, FDA looked at found that if you did J&J followed by Moderna, that was a 76-fold increase in antibodies. J&J followed by Pfizer was a 35-fold increase. And J&J followed by a second J&J was only a four-fold increase. So when they looked at other combinations, there was not that marked a difference, but it was also clearly non-inferior. So that's why they said, it doesn't matter which booster you get. Now, they said it doesn't matter, but I think it matters a lot. If I had, if I got J&J, I'm going to be getting Moderna. 76-fold increase, and what is that, about an 18 times difference between getting Moderna and getting uh, getting another J&J. So I'm definitely getting a Moderna. Maybe I'd, if I could only have Pfizer available to me, I'd get Pfizer. If we want to talk about what the... Uh, the groups are for the boosters is all three of them. If you're 65 or older, if you are an adult and you had a high risk of COVID-19, then you're eligible for vaccine. The other thing that they threw in there that there was a lot of debate about at the beginning was an adult with frequent institutional or occupational exposure to the virus. Now that's a, that's of course a loophole that you can drive a truck through. The intent of that indication was to pick up food service workers, teachers, healthcare workers, groups like that. But there's a lot of talk that, you know, frequent travelers, if you have to travel frequently for business, you're in airplanes, you're in airports, you're things like that. Well, that's a that's a high uh, or frequent institutional exposure. So I think there's going to be a lot of people that fall into the institutional um, or occupational exposure uh, indication for getting a booster. One of the things about titers, antibody titers, is they don't necessarily reflect what's going on with cell-mediated immunity. Uh, this is what we call humoral immunity. So you could have a relatively low antibody level and still have strong uh, T-cell reaction to the virus. So that's the problem with antibodies. It's a, what we call a surrogate marker for whether or not the vaccine will be infective. The, the only way to really prove it is to do epidemiologic studies. And we have seen that, that the, with the two shot vaccines and also with J&J, that the number of cases uh, has gone up in those that are vaccinated. And so the efficacy has slowly gone down from 94% to, I think, in the mid-80s and maybe even the 70s for Moderna and Pfizer. And then for J&J, it was about 74. And I think it's dropped down to the 50s, the 40s and 50s, as far as efficacy with regards to so one of the big things um, that steered the committee towards the uh, towards the booster for Moderna, because the Moderna data was not as compelling, but then they looked at hospitalization rates and they saw that that from six to eight months post vaccination with Moderna, there was a not overwhelming but a statistically significant increase in hospitalizations after receiving the Moderna. So that was enough to to throw it into the camp for Moderna. For Pfizer and J&J, &J, it was actually much more clear cut. Uh, the 
for the two mRNA vaccines, the indication is at six months after the second shot is when you should be looking at getting a booster. For J&J, it's two months after getting the shot, and you don't have those indications. It's basically it's anybody. Anybody who got the J&J shot two months later should get a booster of any one of the three. And based on what I said a few minutes ago, I, I would be leaning towards an mRNA uh, as a, the booster shot for J&J. Fred, any further thoughts on this? Uh, no, I agree with those recommendations. It's turned out that the Moderna gives you the most powerful uh, a rise, the largest rise in antibodies and the most persistent level of antibodies. And then no surprise, if you use that as the booster, you get the highest uh, boosting of antibody levels. So uh, Moderna does seem to be the winner overall as far as protection. All right. I'm going to quote both of you uh, um, from many, many weeks ago when I asked you which is the best vaccine so just to crystallize for the audience, six months, if, if it's been six months with uh, Moderna or with Pfizer, get the third booster. If it's two months out with J&J, uh, take the booster as well. David, one more thing I'd like to mention is that there are concerns. I mean, it's not like getting these things have no risk factors at all. If it was, if there were no risks, of course, the, 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 we'd be saying everybody go get it right now. But there are small risks. Well, with both of the mRNA, but especially with Moderna, there have been concerns about autoimmune issues, in, including transient myocarditis. Now, that's been seen with both with both Pfizer and with Moderna, but it's been seen much more, especially in the young male adult and, and eld, older adolescent population is where this has been seen. But this it is very rare. It gets lots of attention because it's happening in young people, but it's still very, very rare and almost always, I, you know, you never say always or never in medicine, almost always very treatable. Um, and then with the J&J vaccine, there's been the rare clotting issues, kind of parallel, different clots, but parallel with what was seen with AstraZeneca in, in Europe. What I've been saying is for younger males, probably lean a little bit more towards Pfizer. It's not a big deal because these are small numbers, but if you have a choice, why why not minimize your risk? For Women of childbearing age, I'd lean against J&J &J and towards one of the mRNA vaccines. Fred, if I can channel, uh, channel you a bit, um, all vaccines carry some risks, uh, including the flu vaccine. But in terms of the data, they are minimal. Uh, as Bill has said, the risks of getting the vaccine versus the risks of not taking the vaccine does that apply just in terms of the data that you're seeing with the third booster shot or second in the case of J&J? &J? Um, yes, I, th I think it definitely will. And, and actually, there was a very nice article in JAMA that did, uh, statistically analyzed, I think, about 10 million vaccinations and found they could not find any statistically significant signal, although there was an increase, but it wasn't statistically significant, of myocarditis um, and in the uh, Moderna and in the Pfizer and the thrombophobitis in the J&J. &J. But it was uh, really hard to detect, indicating these are exceedingly rare side effects and there's no reason to believe that the booster is going to increase that significantly. 
and, and the other side of that is if you get the illness, if you get COVID-19, that has a high risk of blood clots and it has a high risk of myocarditis. So you're definitely, your overall risks are lower if you get the vaccine. Absolutely, Bill. And what we're doing now, uh, there was a recent article that came out that you, if someone's got moderate disease, uh, COVID-19, and they're hospitalized, they should get uh, therapeutic levels of anticoagulant uh, because of the, the risk is, uh, is significantly reduced by using anticoagulants while you're in the hospital if you're moderately ill. So this is, uh, we want to prevent that. And it does seem to prevent those clots. So a fair number of people have shown up with pulmonary emboli. Um, there have been a few strokes and the other big problem that I think is just raising its head, and I saw an article just today, is neurocognitive problems. And there have been MRIs of individuals who have had moderate uh, disease who complain of brain fog. When they do MRIs, the neuroradiologists uh, uh, suggest that it looks a lot like Alzheimer's disease. So this is a real scare. And I think their neurocognitive effects of this virus have yet to be fully appreciated. Fred, just to clarify, you're not talking about the side effects of the vaccine. You're talking about the long-term consequences of contracting COVID. Exactly, yes. There are no known neurocognitive effects by the vaccine. This is the virus itself and maybe a very uh, significant component of the long-haul syndrome which approximately one-third of uh, adults uh, complain of in, in different degrees. Let me uh, pivot away from um, the good news and try to thread it through um, uh, a lens of pragmatism. What, what is the thinking about making sure that people have had that third vaccine as a process of controlling the contagions and also minimizing, Fred, as you've said, the hospitalizations. Are you seeing anything from a regulatory standpoint uh, and a certificate standpoint where people, you know, must have a third vaccine within a certain period of time, you know, to gain entrance to venues, to perhaps as a guideline for returning to work? What are you seeing along those lines? David, what I'm seeing is just, is is actual statements that no we are not going to require a at this time at least we're not going to require a booster to consider you fully vaccinated and the reason for that is the the vaccine we still know the vaccine even without a booster is very effective at preventing hospitalization and and death um, it is a lower effectiveness as as fred said in preventing symptomatic disease but one of the things as we look again at the epidemiologic data is it appears that vaccinated to vaccinated does not transmit very effectively it's either vaccinated vaccinated but with a breakthrough infection transmitting to someone who is not infected is not vaccinated or someone who is not vaccinated because of the overwhelming load of virus that delta causes can transmit and create breakthrough infections in vaccinated people. So when they put all that together, there has not been a lot of uh, talk of requiring the booster to be considered fully vaccinated at this point. And I think part of it is the politics and the, the acrimony that we've seen about just getting the, the basic in there. I think that that there's a sense out there that if we go to say you have to have the booster to be considered fully vaccinated, that that will create even more acrimony. 
The booster is a little bit of icing on the cake. So I, I would not favor mandating the booster. I do, however, favor uh, those that are unvaccinated and being mandated to be vaccinated uh, for the workplace or virtually anywhere. Uh, I noticed that Australia is now in certain areas is mandating the vaccine for everyone. But those companies that have mandated after initial uh, really strong resistance, almost everybody gives in and gets the vaccine. And then they achieve rates of 90 to 95 percent vaccination. And they don't have to worry about the infection anymore in the workplace. An incredible benefit. Fred, I think, I think what you're pointing out is it's been tough enough to get people to be vaccinated once, no less twice, no less a third time. No, that, that's exactly right. And one of the things that I've found very interesting is, you know, I work with a number of large companies and we have seen the companies that are bringing people back in the office uh, have not been seeing any in-office transmission in environments where they have a very high degree of vaccination, either 100%. Most are saying 100%. You're coming back to the office. You have to be vaccinated. We're seeing cases but they're not cases that are transmitted in the office. And that's why it's important to maintain some degree of a screening program. And the screening program, not just for COVID, but you want to keep out, right now at least, you want to keep all respiratory diseases out because otherwise the screening for trying to decide what's COVID and what's not is going to be really tough. So you, want, you don't want people coming to work sick. The whole idea of presenteeism, coming to work because you feel like you have to, is going to be a problem through this cold season. I think on prior occasions, I heard from you, Bill, and Fred, uh, people should not overlook their flu shot. And just to come back, I think uh, both of you gave the guidance that it was fine to get both the flu vaccine and possibly the third booster on the same occasion. More and more, I'm as I'm hearing uh, others' opinions on this and having patients go through it, um, it seems that with the booster... I'm, I'm seeing less side effects. I don't know what Fred's seeing, but I'm seeing fewer side effects. And a lot of people are doing the booster and the, the flu shot at the same time. I'm not seeing a lot of problems with it. And the side effects are relatively mild. I haven't seen, uh, certainly with the Pfizer, there have been very little in the way of uh, side effects from the booster. Uh, Moderna is going to lower the dose of their booster uh, because some people have experienced a little bit... Uh, stronger reactions when they got the full uh, dose for the booster. Week ahead, uh, this has been an eventful week in terms of announcements. What, what should uh, the audience be looking for, either in terms of data or, or news on, um, you know, on any new developments uh, with respect to the virus? David, I'm not expecting anything this week, but the following week we may see something on kids. They may meet initially next week, but then we'll start hearing something either towards the end of the week or early the following week on when kids, meaning 5 to 11, would be eligible for a vaccine. I, the other big thing that I've been answering a lot of questions on and seeing a lot of discussion on is holiday parties. I figure right now we're right at the time when people are scheduling their holiday parties, making their plans. They're trying to look at what factors do you have to take into consideration. And I could go for half an hour on this, but I'll just go just very quickly. I want to 
say that there are seven major factors that uh, organizations or even individuals, if you're having home parties, need to look at in how in deciding if you're going to do it and if you're going to do it, how do you manage it? And that's what's the background level of transmission in your local area? What is the vaccination status of who's going to be attending the party, whether that's just what's the, the local vaccination level or do you mandate vaccination to the extent that you can? Are you going to do symptom screening or not going into the into your function? Are you going to require masks or not? Are you doing indoor versus outdoor function if, if you're in an area where the weather allows that? How is the air in the facility, if it's an indoor facility, how is the air managed? All about filtration and airflow, fresh air makeup, all of those issues. And then finally, are you going to do any kind of pre-event testing? So we could talk through in depth each one of those, but if you're thinking about having a function, you need to take those seven uh, dynamics and make sure that you've thought through each one of them. Bill, it's really a nice outline of what you need to do. And based on the, having to do seven things, I recommend that for the most part, you put off these gatherings for one more season. Uh, Fred, I'm trying to square the circle a little bit because Madison Square Garden, I keep referring to this, I know. Um, opening night, Knicks go to double overtime with the Boston Celtics. The place is packed, shoulder to shoulder, 90% of the people, 95% of the people not wearing masks, usual congregation in the halls, uh, the food courts, that type of thing. And I will tell you um, that at the end of the game, I've never seen so many people high-fiving strangers like they had won a championship. And I couldn't help but think about you, Fred, and what a Petri dish this could be. Now, they require people to be fully vaccinated, but how do you begin to square the circle? Because, you know, people are itching to congregate, socialize. Businesses are absolutely itching to return to normal and signal they're returning to normal to do the types of things that connect their customers and their clients. Bill outlined what ideally should be done, and, and I, I really like this seven list. Um, the problem is in a huge gathering uh, such as the, the Madison Square Garden, obviously all those things cannot be done. And can you be sure that everybody is vaccinated? Um, can you be sure that every, no one has any symptoms? Uh, can you be sure that there's nobody in there that's going to be a super spreader? It's all a matter of statistics. It's all a matter of probability. The greater the crowd, the more likely there will be a super spreader. The more likely, if you are uh, unvaccinated, you could become quite ill. It's interesting uh, when you, I, I did a little series uh, with two pediatricians on schools and spread and what they have found that indoor sports were the leading place that kids got infected. It wasn't in the classroom, certainly wasn't outdoors. It was in the basketball was one of the leading uh, places where the virus did spread. So I do worry about these closed spaces uh, with dry air, aerosolized aerosols can be present. You could breathe those in. I go to actually the University of Florida volleyball games, which are indoors. I'm spaced out, but I always wear an N95 respirator mask uh, for the fear of, of uh, there being aerosol, infectious aerosol. 
as you think through the seven components and going along exactly along the lines that Fred is saying, you don't know what you each one of those has a, a statistical a statistical rate of failure. So you look at it as a as a Swiss cheese approach. If you have a very low background level of transmission that's a pretty thick layer yes there's going to be the occasional case that's that's the hole in that layer if you've got a high vaccination rate locally and that's that's the only thing you know about it well that's that's good but if you've got a low vaccination rate well that's a pretty thin layer with lots of holes in it so and so all of these you've got to think about where your strengths and weaknesses are if you've got a high level a background level of transmission then you really better be sure that people are vaccinated. You want to see their vaccine card coming in. That may be that you want to mask everybody because if you've got a high level of transmission. So you've got to you take the Swiss cheese or the or the defense in depth approach um, and, and strengthen the layers that you can to pick up any weaknesses in the layers that you can't control. So uh, great advice from both of you. And again, thank you for your valuable time and your valuable uh, insights. Stay safe until next week. We'll be on the lookout for any news and any data that will be helpful in managing this risk and obviously hopefully some more things to come about the protection of our children. Thank, Thank you, you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.